Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Real View for its Quarter 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the conference, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. I would now like to turn the conference over to your host, Head of Investor Relations, Mr. Paul Bieber. Please go ahead. Thank you, Chris. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Real Reels Earnings Call for the quarter ended December 31st, 2020. I'm Paul Bieber, Head of Investor Relations at the Real Real. Joining me today to discuss our results are founder and CEO Julie Wainwright and Chief Financial Officer Matt Gutsky. Hopefully you've had a chance to read our press release and stockholder letter that we distributed earlier today, both of which are also available on our Investor Relations website. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that we will make forward-looking statements during the course of this call. These forward-looking statements involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties, and our actual results could differ materially. You can find more information about these risks, uncertainties, and other factors that could affect our operating results in our most recent periodic report on Form 10-K, subsequent quarterly reports on Form 10-Q, and in our earnings release from earlier today. In addition, our presentation will include certain non-GAAP financial measures for which we have provided reconciliations to the most comparable GAAP measures in our earnings press release. With that, I'll hand the call over to Julie for introductory remarks, and then we'll go straight to Q&A. Julie? Thanks, Paul, and good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us today to discuss our Q4 2020 results. Obviously, 2020 was a very challenging year, but we were resilient and found ways to innovate. We are seeing encouraging signs of recovery with December GMV back to growth and quarter-to-date trends even stronger. Overall, we are well-positioned to emerge a stronger company. We are tremendously thankful to our employees for their dedication during these unprecedented times. We'd especially like to recognize the teams on the front lines in our authentication centers and retail locations. Thank you for your tireless work and commitment. We believe that as we come out of COVID, the tailwinds that have driven the outperformance of many of the e-commerce companies will slow. In contrast, we could see an increasing tailwind as major markets return to normal, which could drive acceleration in our business. This growth would help us realize efficiencies in our operations, leverage across our cost structure as we march toward profitability. Last year, we embarked on several strategic initiatives that will position us to capitalize on the large opportunity ahead. The most significant initiatives include neighborhood stores, we plan to operate to open approximately 10 of these by the end of Q2. Given our early results, we're optimistic this strategy will allow us to further engage with our most valuable customers and significantly unlock supply more efficiently than marketing efforts alone. Our vendor program is number two. This has improved our ability to source high value supply and we continue we will continue to invest in people, processes, and technology to support its growth. Q2 
the Q4 vendor channel, GMV, increased 80% year-on-year, our third consecutive quarter of acceleration. Lastly, our Arizona Authentication Center. We accelerated the timeline for opening our new facility to the summer of 2021 to support our next phase of growth. It will help us improve shipping times while reducing shipping expenses and fixed costs per order as we scale. When we provided our last update in December, November supply and new buyer growth were trending positively and our GMV was gradually recovering. This recovery continued over the balance of Q4, with December GMV growth accelerating to 6% year-on-year. Our GMV trends have continued to strengthen so far in Q1 of 2021. Quarter to date through February 19th, GMV growth was 14% year-on-year against a non-COVID period. Consequently, we anticipate full-quarter GMV will increase between 17 to 20% year-on-year as we begin to lap COVID impacts. We are optimistic about our recovery in 2021. However, the reality is the pandemic is not yet behind us, which makes it difficult for us to provide a longer-term GMV outlook at this time. The thought I want to leave you with is that we're excited about 20, uh, that as we exited 2020, we were back to growth, and we're excited about continuing our growth and supply momentum um, increasing in 2021. And this is underscored by widespread vac- vaccine distribution, which is apparently around the corner. Hopefully, you've had a chance to read our stockholder letter, which contains a lot more details on our Q4 and early 2021 performance. So with that, operator, let's open the line for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press the star, then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound key. Your first question comes from Oliver Chen from Cohen. Your line is open. Hi, Julian, Matt. Thank you. Um, regarding supply, what do you see ahead uh, for the New York LA markets? You did a really great job with growing supply in the other markets, and also you're uh, managing a lot of innovation in the B2B vendor program. But what what should be on our mind uh, for Q1 and beyond with supply gathering and how uh, the different regional pieces may mix? Um, I'll take this one. Um, you know, right now we're not going to make a prediction by region, but overall we expect our supply continue to grow. Um, and that really is, it was already double digits for uh, going into this quarter and supply growth, and that will be aided by our new retail neighborhood stores and vendor. So we feel as if we've reached a turning point on our supply coming in. Um, we're very excited about uh, the fact that we're now in the third month of growth. Okay, and you had encouraging commentary on women's apparel returning to growth. I uh, would love your thoughts on what that means and and um, if that may or may not be volatile and, and how the customer is behaving. And, um, and the really encouraging growth on, on new buyers, um, what's the data saying for new buyer retention and new buyer behavior on the platform? 
Um, so a lot of questions in there as normal. Uh, number one, apparel is returned to growth. We expect it to continue to um, continue to actually grow given lockdowns are easing. So we expect that to continue to grow, and it's exciting. It's the first time women's apparel has grown for us since we had the lockdowns. Um, as we stated previously, we are a well. Our average unit selling price has really been driven by our high by our high handbag sales and fine jewelry and watches. So right now, our AOVs are up, our ASPs are up, overall the ASPs are up, and it appears that our new buyers are behaving like our old new buyers did pre-COVID, but they're spending a little bit more money. In terms of their repeat rate back to the site, they look pretty similar at this point. Yeah, that's helpful. Last one, neighborhood stores sounds uh, really innovative, and you have good reads from the newest ones. Why was now the right time for that um, in this dynamic environment we're facing where, where physical retail is really having to change quickly? There are so many um, reasons why we know this is the right way to go. Number one, we had one test case in Madison, which has done phenomenally well, even with the ability to have limited capacity in the store during the COVID time. Uh, number two, the rents in the neighborhoods have dropped precipitously, and the willingness of landlords to do uh, shorter-term leases, also critical to our decision-making and number three, you know, as you know, we are always looking to remove friction from the process for the consigners. In a study we did about six months ago, this was a way that they also wanted to participate, more neighborhood drop-offs. So the combination, sometimes the stars align, meant that it made sense for us to go ahead and open 10 as fast as possible uh, this year with short-term leases with an eye to measuring both demand and supply. They are primarily for supply. Um, and then we'll decide if we're going to open more. But right now there are favorable terms um, for driving those smaller neighborhood stores to faster profitability than there were before COVID. Thank you very much. Best regards. Thank you. Your next question comes from Eric Sheridan of UBS. Carolina Thank you so much for taking the question. Uh, maybe I could touch upon some of the initiatives you have with the brands, hearkening back to some of the announcements that you made last year. You know, obviously one of the big goals you've talked about as a company is, is sustainability and going after some of the broader uh, goals the industry is trying to also accomplish around um, uh, making sure uh, you know luxury continues along this path in in forward years and the role you play. Can you talk a little bit as we update turning out of 20 into 21 about the relationships with the brands and then more importantly how it feeds into some of the sustainability narratives you've talked about the company? Thank you. Sure. I mean, as you know, we have Stella McCartney that's a long-term partner then the first one to join in and actually has been always echoing the importance of the circular economy and its role in a more sustainable supply chain and fashion world. Um, and Burberry is still with us. Gucci, we're still in discussions with Gucci's relationships with the real rail was different than any other prior relationship because not only did they encourage people to participate in the circular economy via consigning, they also encouraged them to buy. So we are, um, uh, Stella and uh, Burberry continuing, we're in conversations with Gucci, and there will be more partnerships announced later in the year, 
and it will be along the lines of reinforcing sustainability. So um, slowly but surely, we're about ready to celebrate our 10-year birthday this year. Slowly but surely, the message is coming through, and um, and the time is right for this. I also think there, with the administration shift in the U.S., I do think there's going to be a greater emphasis on environmental impact of each industry, and I don't think that's lost in the brands that we are working with, the real, real, and other people that do resale make sense uh, in order to hit, have them um, hit their own sustainability numbers. Thanks so much. Your next question comes from Michael Bineri of Credit Suisse. Your line is open. Hey guys, thanks for um, all the detail in the shareholder letter today, and uh, thanks for taking all our questions. Um, I guess, you know, can you speak to the first quarter GMV guidance? I don't, I don't mean to be short term, but um, 17 to 20 percent GMV growth with 14 percent in the quarter to date, and then obviously March gets about 45 points easier just based on the monthly reporting you provided. So is there, I'm wondering if there's something in the flow of supply that would cause the multi-years to slow, or is it, is it just an abundance of caution on your part until we were around the bend here? Uh, I'll, I'll start there, and I'll have a follow-up. Yep. So uh, like everything with GMV, it always starts with supply. Supply has been doing well, been building progressively. We're, ha- we're happy with how that's trending. Um, and you're right, so if you, but if you check, track the progress, December was our first month of getting back to positive growth at plus six, quarter to date, 14, which of course implies over the balance of the quarter that there's, there's some acceleration. Listen, we're still in the middle of COVID, so there is an abundance of caution here. This is the first time we've been comfortable enough to put anything resembling guidance on paper. So uh, I think coming out of the gate, this is a positive step forward in terms of we have some visibility, but more importantly, increasing confidence in the trajectory of our recovery. So we're, we're happy with it. Of course, we're going to look to, to overshoot. Great. Okay, thanks for that. And then I guess, um, you know, can you, you mentioned in the shareholder letter some of the image recognition software um, is something that can help you on the inbound supply. I'd, I'd love to hear some, some thinking on that. We've seen some interesting stuff on that from uh, competitors in this space. And then, Matt, if you wouldn't mind just walking me through I, I just thought that back of the shareholder letter, you commented that um, gross profit per order in first quarter, I think, would be flat year over year, and I think that was down a bit in, in fourth quarter. So maybe just, you know, what was what was driving that in fourth quarter and, and what what's different in the mix in the first quarter, please? Um, I'll take the first part, and then Matt can take the back part. We've made um, tremendous uh, progress in automating our op centers by it wasn't just um, image recognition, but image recognition played a part on it. So machine learning and computer vision along with some image recognition. So now in uh, copywriting, price automation, photo editing in particular, we're up to about almost 80% in all of those of automation, which means that the people we employ are doing more QC work and QA work. So we continue to um, accelerate there. We also have uh, unlike most of the um, people in this business, we also have a huge fine jewelry and watch component. So we've been able to further our automation of measuring the depth of diamonds uh, in, within the setting without having humans recalculate it twice in the old way, which we still do for all other uh, 
types of stones because we would never remove a stone from a jewelry. So our automation um, continues fairly regularly and a little ahead of schedule in our op centers, which is actually, to be honest, that is um, where we've been focusing. But that technology can be applied across multiple channels later on. I would just say we're really pleased with the progress and um, and these are the key things we needed to feel comfortable to support our growth and decrease our unit economics and our op centers. Yep, and I'll take the, the second one on just an overview on, on gross profit uh, drivers. So you're right, we, we are comfortable to guide to flat gross profit per order um, in the first quarter. Dynamics underneath there, one, as always, gr growth drives leverage all throughout the P&L, so that's helpful. We have been seeing, to Julie's earlier uh, comments, improvements in our average order value driven by good contributions from high-value categories. Um, we're also seeing nice year-over-year uh, -year improvements in our shipping expenses. Uh, so all adding up to um, the good things, kind of offsetting the, 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 the little bit of work we have left to do recovery on AOV and, and take rate, which continues to be correlated with those high-value products. Going back to Q4, a little bit of that as well. So AOV first was down 6% year over year, uh, almost exclusively due to units per transaction, yet to climb back to historical norms. Um, in addition, we had a few uh, other things going on. Take rate was down 50 basis points year over year due to the strong performance from uh, high ASP categories, handbags and jewelry in particular, as well as more consigners earning higher take rates. That means a higher contribution from our existing repeat consigners. Second, we did see elevated levels of buyer incentives in Q4. We use buyer incentives as a tactic to garner both new and uh, buyers and consigners, and it has, has had an immediate impact, and it's really just kind of a, a shift out of traditional marketing to be to more immediate impact. So we use it as a way to, to stimulate buyer and consigner activity during COVID, but as our growth recovers and supply growth in particular recovers, we expect to see that decrease over time. And then finally, there was a, a $2.2 million one-time adjustment uh, in Q4 that's, that's described in detail in the, in the stockholder letter. Okay. Thanks a lot, Matt. Your next question comes from Erin Murphy of Piper Center. The line is open. Great. Thanks. Good afternoon, and nice to see the recovering growth. Um, Julie, I guess my question for you is on the 30% new consigners that are coming from stores. I think that was just for the month of December. Can you share a little bit more about what you're learning about this new consigner versus maybe other new cohorts in the past? And then a follow-up for Matt on the new DC in Arizona. Can you just talk about how new uh, or how shipping times, excuse me, will look when you're up and running there, and then your plans for the Brisbane uh, DC once that. At, um, once Arizona is up. Thank you. Hi. So, well, first of all, we are excited about our new neighborhood stores, obviously, since we've committed to opening 10 in the first six months, and that's based on some early results. Now, all of this data is rather preliminary outside the Madison store, but the consigners who actually consign at a retail location tend to consign 1.5 times more in value than consigners that consign to other um, venues for us. They also uh, tend to have a higher NPS score. 
So early days on on that um, for the retail stores, but we're pretty excited about the early results. The interesting thing uh, right now, these results are based on a limited capacity constraint that we have in our stores due to COVID. So when you look at given all the constraints that are put on our business, um, including, for example, in Palo Alto, we could only have four people in the store at one time beyond the sales team. It shows that um, there's a pent-up demand for a frictionless consignment in a neighborhood. So we're excited about our early results look very promising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a little bit more detail on on, on Arizona. Um, so this is purely about us focusing on the next phase of growth. This is our largest facility uh, in our portfolio and should set us up for a, a few, if not several years worth of, worth of growth. In terms of shipping, right now it's not like in the early days it's not going to be much of a difference uh, because we do have some capacity in both coasts to sort of load balance. But as we continue to grow, we would max out our capacity here in, in Brisbane and then have to start shipping things larger distances. So it's really as we start to grow, it allows us to keep optimizing our shipping distances, costs, and, and managing service levels to, to customers and consigners, by the way, in terms of products coming in. Um, so we're really excited about this to give us the capacity to grow over the next several years, and by a wide margin is our lowest cost location. So that's going to drive a lot of expense leverage as we scale on a, a fixed cost per, per order basis. Got it. And if I could just add a follow-up, Matt, for you on the shipping contracts that you negotiated at the end of 19. I know on this call last year you talked about originally planning 500 basis points of gross margin improvement, then obviously COVID hit. So curious as you look forward into this year, GMV is clearly accelerating. How do you think about kind of the gross margin opportunity um, once we, you know, now that we're seeing that top line inflect from, from specifically the shipping contract renegotiation? Yeah. Yeah, so the shipping contract itself is doing what it's supposed to do. So as, as we get growth back, we're going to get all of the, the leverage that we anticipated uh, out of shipping. Um, gross margin itself is a bit of a tricky number for us because we have this, uh, this mix of direct and consignment revenues with inherently different gross margin profiles. Um, so that's sort of the unknown. But we actually think that the direct revenue mix will increase somewhat uh, as we lean into the vendor opportunity, including selectively purchasing inventory up front, which we have seen is yielding higher prices and better margin profiles for us. So to the extent that we continue to see that happening, we're going to keep doing that. Um, so that's going to keep mixing direct up. So hence, we just keep trying to encourage people to focus back on gross profit per order as the metric to, to track how we're, we're progressing in our overall productivity and path to profitability. And we see the opportunity to get from the roughly $80 level that we were at most recently to about 100 nearly $100 in the next 12 to 18 months. Great. Thank you so much. Your next question comes from Edward Yuma of KeyBank Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hey, good evening, guys. Thanks for taking the questions. I guess first... Um, trying to understand a little bit on the supply side promotions you've been running, it seems like some of your competitors are kind of driving take rate down in an effort to jumpstart their businesses. Just kind of stepping back, do you do you think there's been any impact or do you think that this is uh, a period of kind of pronounced uh, promotions on that side? 
And then second, you know, with Arizona plus neighborhood stores, is there something we should think about from like a, a near to medium term expense build perspective? Um, and then just kind of one one final question um, on on the vendor relationships. Um, I, I guess any sense as to whether that is uh, negative to the relationships that you've been so successful at building with the brands. Thank you. Um, all right, I'm gonna. This is Julie. I'm gonna take some and turn it over to Matt. So let's just talk about the last one first, the vendor relationships. Some of the vendor relationships we've been building with the brands are the same brands that are working with us in other capacity. So actually, to me, they work hand in glove, and our vendors are a little more um, diverse than just the luxury brands that uh, deal in fashion because we do have other categories with fine jewelry and art and home that we also source from, and those have been, especially the art and home vendors, have been very uh, good for us during COVID times, but we do have a variety of vendors that are in the fashion world. But it, some of the vendors that we work with strategically are also vendors that we work with um, on our vendor side of the business for overstock or um, other types of products. Sometimes they're running tests. So that is, um, that's what's going on with the vendor. Um, do you want to take the other? Yep. yep. Uh, kind of, is that recall, I remember the question. Part, Everyone, everyone's going for like lots of questions. Yeah, a three part uh, question. Test our memory. Um, so I think the second question is around uh, just basically around store financials and what does that mean for the, the, the P&L and the balance sheet over the near term. Uh, the good news with these stores is that because they're small footprint um, with short term leases and favorable favorable environment for getting uh, lease terms for, for retail right now, as you might uh, might imagine. Um, these things aren't particularly expensive. So we think, you know, I don't want to be overly precise here uh, because we don't really have much data, um, but we're hopeful that these things can be, become sources of profit in the plus or minus a year from opening them, and they really don't take much capital to open. We get them open in four to six weeks after we sign a lease, spend two, three hundred thousand dollars in capital, right? So rolling out, you know, ten of these is a handful of million dollars of capital this year. And once we kind of get to the back end of this year, we start to get closer to the tipping point where it's, it becomes neutral to the, the P&L. In the short term, it's a bit of a drag, but really not that much. And then I think the other question is around just the take rate environment and pressure we're seeing. We're not seeing it. Uh, uh, so, look, what we've seen in the press uh, with the take rate is that it's on sneakers and watches. And our watches take rate has always been competitive within that space. And the watch, the watch resale market has always been competitive. So that really hasn't put any damper on it. Our sneakers, um, it's not a big component of our mix. We're still getting amazingly high-quality sneakers and with, without changing our take rates. So this is the beauty of being a multi-category, multi-brand business where if someone decides to bring the take rate down to zero for sneakers, really doesn't impact us. Um, our take rate uh, shift in our P&L is mostly due to us selling more high-value things because it, during COVID in particular, it was handbags and fine jewelry and then watches in that order and then men's. And so those first three already have what we would consider a really good competitive take rate that didn't change. Um, they Now we're adding apparel this quarter. Apparel is coming back to life and selling, so that will change the gross margin again in terms of percentage more on the positive side. 
Great. Thanks for answering all the questions, guys. Mm-hmm. Your next question comes from Justin Post of Bank of America. Your line is open. Justin, I can't hear you. Sorry about that. Uh, thanks for answering my questions. Uh, two, two. I guess the first, can you um, maybe, Julie, compare the vendor program economics to, you know, the, the, the core sourced inventory? Any any big differences we should be aware of? And then the second one is for Matt. Maybe you could help us just, I know you did incentives in Q4, buyer incentives, extra marketing, which which makes sense. Help us think about how to, how to frame an EBITDA outlook for the first quarter. Thank you. Um, so vendor economics um, overall are good, but it is a supply that, in fact, it's you know a net accretive to the business. However, it's not. Uh, it we still have to be very careful on the supply, and our goal is not to become Overstock.com, where it's, in fact you would end up dropping prices on quite a few. So our approach to vendor is um, we wanted to increase our diversity of supply. Vendors are really sort of one that is there for the taking. We can have a good gross margin on it with a high price, but it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all in the way we take in all products. So, And we also do have to invest in, in that platform, meaning getting a skewed depth on our platform to really optimize that along with invest in the team. But it is the unit economics are good on vendor. The core stores, again, too early to call. They look pretty amazing. Um, they have an added benefit of both getting supply for us, and we do sell things there. And we tend to sell things at a much higher AOV, which is accretive to the average overall AOV um, height, which makes sense if you think about it. High value things sell faster in person than perhaps they do online. So, and uh, they also have a marketing benefit. So those transcend just supply acquisition, and um, we've got a lot of analysis to do on those as we get out of COVID to see how high is up with them. But even in COVID times, they look good for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one quick thing to add on, on vendor economics. It's important to keep in mind that vendor and buying upfront or taking inventory are not synonymous. The majority of our vendor business comes in on regular consignment terms just like everybody else. It's more about how it flexes our supply in the direction we want it so we can be more strategic about adding high-value supply. There is, of course, some direct inventory purchases there, but there is on the consignment side as well. So those are really two separate vectors. The focus of the vendor channel is to bring in incremental high-value supply and enrich our gross profit per order metric overall. Um, on the other question around bottom line expectations for Q1, so obviously it's, it, we're, we're too much of a period of uncertainty for me to be comfortable to, to, to be declarative about that, uh, but we've done what we could and provided the transparency that we think is appropriate in terms of GMV. Um, seeing GMV acceleration, gross profit per order being roughly flat, and directional guidance on our operating expenses, I, namely marketing, which excludes the buyer incentives, uh, being down modestly quarter over quarter, our ops and tech up substantially quarter over quarter as we start realizing expenses in Arizona, 
We open a bunch of these core stores. We're investing in technology to support all of the above. So that one's going to be up a, a decent amount. And then SG&A, um, it, as we said, kind of just up very, very modestly. So add it all together, you know, growth, the, the extent to which we grow is going to be the real de determinant of where the, the ultimate bottom line sort of shakes out. But there's still a fair amount of, uh, of, of range that that could, that, that could be. Great. Thank you. Oh, I didn't mention, I didn't, buy incentives, I guess. The answer to that is essentially embedded in the guidance of, of gross profit per order being flat year over year, meaning we already see that that's going to start trending down hand in hand with our supply uh, recovering. Now back to positive available inventory on a year over year basis. We hit that in January. So as we continue to grow supply, it just lessens our dependence on using those types of incentives. So we are seeing that. Got it. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Julie. Sure. Your next question comes from Mark Alston from Umbeard. Your line is open. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my, my question. Um, was hoping you could give us an update on the trends you're seeing with uh, virtual appointments. You know, how are some of your larger you know, white glove clients uh, adapting to this now that we're all getting you know a bit more used to the virtual interactions? And also curious how um, the sales team productivity um, is trending with um, the move to virtual. So um, you know we look at multiple channels, and when you look at the ones that have some sales involvement, we've got. Um, we still have a little bit of in-home. We've got virtual. We have ship direct where people put it in a box and ship it directly to us, and now we have stores. And I would say virtual is closer to um, the stores uh, than, than the pre previous white glove, and we're starting to go back into people's home upon request. So, for example, if we go into your home, we tend to pick up maybe 50% more items than if we actually do a virtual appointment. So the productivity is almost break even in early days. Having said that, we think once we get out of COVID that, uh, that virtual will get more productive and uh, because we'll get our, it's just going to be a mix between white glove and virtual depending on where people are. So, um, the efficiencies have been almost, it's a wash, um, but it's still a good tool. It's a great tool for us to have during COVID times. Yeah, and like longer term, we don't, the answer is we don't know what the mix is going to look like, um, but we're going to let our consigners lead us, and whatever they feel is the least amount of friction for them, uh, we're going to do it. So in-home definitely has a role. Virtual does have a role, but how it ultimately shakes out uh, remains to be seen. Thank you. And, and then, Matt, just a quick follow-up um, on some of the, the vendor-related you know, commentary. Uh, inventory looks like it was up pretty significantly year over year. Um, could you maybe just give us a bit more color um, on what's going on there, the drivers, and any implications as we um, look ahead? Yeah. Um, our inventory is sort of a law of small numbers here. So it's like up in a percentage basis pretty substantially year over year. I think a 70-something percent increase. Um, but that's still only in a few tens of millions. Um, the, ma the majority of that increase relates to a couple of large vendor transactions uh, that we executed in the fourth quarter. And so far, we really like what we're seeing in terms of average selling price, the product margin that we're realizing, and how quickly things are selling. 
Um, so a slight small-term um, use of cash for what we think is going to be additive to gross profit per order and ultimately flushing through the P&L um, as we go forward. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks for all the detail. Mm -hmm. Your next question comes from Ike Warshaw of Wells Fargo. Your line is open. Hey, everyone. Uh, let me add my congrats on the, uh, the acceleration in the business. Um, Matt, two questions for you. Um, just first quick one on, on vendor direct. I think last quarter you would said it was going to be around 10% of, of the business and it could get to 15 to 20% over the next 18 months. Is that kind of the way we should think about uh, the upcoming fiscal year in terms of penetration? Okay, so let me disaggregate this again. Um, so vendor, the channel we call vendor, which is business sellers, Combined on a consignment basis, on in a direct inventory purchase basis, in aggregate, yes, I think we're, we'd still say that tracking to 15 to 20% of total GMV is the right zone for that, um, sort of progressively as, as we go through the year. The opportunity there is still quite substantial. Uh, there's still a lot of inbound interest, and we'll continue to see very uh, strong growth there. Got it. Um, and then... Second question, Matt, just, just bigger picture. So on um, profitability, adjusted EBITDA, positive outlook, I, I totally understand it's not clear right now. But I guess the higher-level question I wanted to ask you would be, um, I believe pre-COVID that the street was kind of expecting you to hit that mark around uh, a little over $2 billion of GMV. I guess just the, the high-level question I'd have for you is, has the model evolved over the past 12 months so much so that that, that revenue or GMV number would change, meaning uh, maybe you would need more GMV because of incremental costs in the business or you know, greater uh, greater mix of lower margin revenue, or maybe it's come down because of better efficiencies in the model. Just, I'm just at a high level. I know you don't want to get into the details, but just holistically, how, how would you kind of think about that? You're right. I don't want to get into the details on something that's not that far. So obviously, the further we go out, the fuzzier thing, things become. Um, but sitting here, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to update anything that we have, uh, may have talked about in, in in the past. But fundamentally, there's there's a lot of good that's come during COVID. Uh, and the the thing that I think I'm most encouraged by is having a more diverse set of supply channels that allows us to be more predictable um, in how we grow the business going forward and coming out of COVID, as well as the progress we've made in in other areas. So. At the very highest level, sitting here and looking out that far into the future, I really don't see anything that's that's a, fun, a fundamental setback in terms of when ultimately we're going to hit that point of break even. Now, in between now and there, of course, a lot of things can happen. You know, if we really love what we're seeing from the neighborhood stores and we say, hey, we're going to do a lot more of those, they, they'll continue to be a, a short-term drag. But we'll balance that as we always have done making sure we're getting the right amount of investment and we're focused on, focusing on profitable growth um, going forward. Very helpful. Thanks, Matt. Your next question comes from Simeon Sigo of BMO Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Matt, sorry if I missed it. Could you elaborate on what drove the buyer incentive Contra rev items this quarter and that 2.2 million reconciliation adjustment, and then just any help, just given the moving pieces, any help on how you're thinking about returns and cancellations for uh, Q1, and then whatever comfort you have into this year. Thank you. 
Okay, another three-pointer. I think I got a returns adjustment um, and buyer incentives. Uh, buyer incentives, just think of like think of them as sort of like a couponing that are that are specific to individual buyers or consigners. Um, and we've used we've we've historically used that as a tactic um, to to drive GMV and supply. New buyer growth, new consigner growth. Uh, it tends to run about you know point and a half, maybe two percentage points of of GMV. In the fourth quarter, that got up closer to about three percent. Um, as we were start, you know we were encouraged with the trends we were seeing, we really wanted to drive it. It's more of an immediate call to action than broad-based marketing. So we're seeing good results from it. So on a short-term basis, we pivoted some of our marketing investment uh, into buyer incentives. Don't expect that to be the case on a sustained basis because uh, supply is really what uh, is the governor of how much we need to lean into that or not. Um, so it's a really short-term tactical thing. Uh, returns and cancels uh, continuing to be uh, favorable versus where, where they were. Um, but roughly flat on a quarter-over-quarter quarter basis is how I've been modeling it. We are going to see a reversion to the, to the, the mean um, over time as we sort of come through COVID, and product mix really starts to kind of come back to where it was. So it's almost sort of a, uh, a U-shaped recovery, I guess, or just kind of uh, reverting to the, the, the mean there. And then, oh, the adjustment. So... As part of our, our audit in 2020, we discovered and corrected an immaterial error that had been accumulating little by little over time. The error itself related to a subset of consigner payments that were made manually outside of our normal payment processes. And some of these manual payments were incorrectly recorded in our financial statements. We have corrected the reconciliation process, um, so that's good as going forward. And we're going to flush the adjustment back to the period that it belongs in when we present our quarterly results with the filing of our 10K. Uh, so, again, immaterial, one-time adjustment, and really no meaningful impact on our go-forward financial results. And for clarity and hopefully helpfulness, in the stockholder letter, we presented Q4 both with and without this, so it doesn't sort of muddy uh, the picture on a year-over-year -year basis. Great. Thanks a lot. Best of luck for the year ahead. Thank you. Your next question comes from Aaron Kessler of Raymond James. Your line is open. Great. Thanks, guys. Maybe just a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, maybe just on the operations and tech, um, realize that in kind of the first half, sounds like that's going to be increasing at a healthy amount. Should we start to maybe expect some leverage in that line as we go into the second half of 21 and then into 22, obviously assuming kind of GMB ramps throughout the year as well? And then just uh, maybe just on the vendor impact on take rates, uh, can you just give us a sense for that? I assume you're managing more to a gross profit per order, but just maybe just the impact on take rates as well would be helpful. Thank you. Okay. Uh, vent, let me check. Vendor impact on take rates. Uh, and I forget. Somebody remind me of the first question. Ops and tech leverage. All right. Thank you. Uh, cool. Vendor impact on take rate. Um, Overall, it should be pretty modest because, uh, the again, what I can't predict is the mix between consignment and direct purchasing. Let's just leave that out of the equation for now. On a like-for-like -like basis, all things equal, it's virtually identical to an individual consigner. The main difference is the mix of products that are coming into that channel. 
it tends to be, and on purpose, it is skewed more toward higher value products. Um, and those inherently structurally in our commission structure have lower take rates. Um, but overall, uh, it's not going to really have a significant uh, impact. Net net positive in terms of gross profit per order. The, whatever we give up in take rate is more than offset by higher AOVs um, and ultimately gross profit. In terms of ops and tech, um, I don't want to get too precise because uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. So the investments that we're making in the short term, core stores, we kind of laid out what that looks like uh, overall. Technology is uh, will continue to invest alongside the growth in the business and to, to power a lot of these strategic initiatives, the vendor program, retail, Arizona, et cetera. Um, and uh, on a, in a short-term basis, yes, that's, a, that's an increase. When it delivers leverage, that's, that's tougher to say. So it's really what does our growth profile look like as we come out of COVID. Um, the OPEX part is obviously more controllable, but to the extent that we kind of start lapping COVID, we see very strong growth rates, and fundamentally the business is sort of in a steadier state of recovery. I would expect to see progressive operating leverage each quarter as we get through the year. Got it. Great. That's helpful. Thanks, guys. Your next question comes from Susan Anderson of B. Riley. Your line is open. Hi. Good evening. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I guess a quick follow-up <clears throat> on the neighborhood store stores. I'm just curious if there's any insight you could give into how much it costs to open them and then also the time frame to profitability and then if you're looking at specific cities or regions where you're planning on opening them. Thanks. Do you want yeah. to uh, yeah. go ahead? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll start. We talked a little bit about this earlier on. Um, we'll have about 10 of them open uh, by the end of the second quarter. Um, they range in footprint from a little over 2,000 square feet to a little bit more than 4,000. Brooklyn is on the higher end of that, that spectrum, though a little bit larger in the 4,000 neighborhood. Uh, but generally speaking, we're looking at 2,500 square feet, two, three-year lease terms, um, they, about 300,000 call it in CapEx to get it open. It takes us six weeks to, to, to open. Um, and then we're hopeful, we don't know because like our oldest ones are just a few months old, um, but we're hopeful that the, on a four-wall basis, these things can look like approximating a break-even in about a 12-month basis. So in the short term, it's a drag, right? But like then as we start, then we let it go and they, they, they continue to perform, then um, this time next year, they should be actually a source of leverage. Right, they should be. And, you know, we did model it based on continuing to have restrictions in the store with um, number of people based on some COVID restrictions. The location was the other thing you were talking mm -hmm. about. Um, again, this is going to be no surprise. Think of neighborhoods outside key urban areas. So, for example, we opened Palo Alto, we opened Brooklyn. Um, we may open another one in um, uh, in New York City. Right now, we only have two, and New York's a big place, and people don't like to leave their 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 neighborhoods. So, um, you start thinking of Connecticut as sort of a natural place. Other places in California, we open Newport Beach, um, and yet we have a store in West Hollywood. So. It's, it's sort of a you can almost figure it out yourself by assuming here's the big cities in the U.S. and here's the, you know, a radius where there's huge pockets 
of um, people that most likely aren't going to travel that far to, to either buy consignment or drop off consignment, but would prefer a neighborhood store. Great. That's helpful. That makes sense. And then I guess just to follow up on the trends that you're seeing by product category into February, um, are you are you expecting, I guess, apparel to continue to increase and maybe, you know, I guess shift back to pre-COVID levels? Or should we think about first quarter being similar to fourth quarter in terms of the penetration of jewelry and handbags? So already it's shifting. So I don't, we don't know obviously what's going to happen, but everything um, ex- besides kids and beauty is growing at a nice clip. So every category is growing without diminishing the um, jewelry and handbags and men's and and watches. So we're actually having nice growth across everything. Um, the nice the bulk of our business is in women's apparel. So it was good to, once that returns to growth, uh, and it is comping a non-COVID month right now and a non-COVID uh, two months, it looks, it you know, it gives us a lot of hope. Yeah, that's, that's definitely very positive. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Good luck next quarter. Thank you. And, uh, I'm Bert, I think we can, we can take one more. If there is. Your next question comes from Marion Fong of PTIG. Your line is open. Great, thank you. Um, thanks for um, fitting me in, in here at the end. Um, just on the neighborhood stores, a uh, follow-up question on that one. It's been, it looks already tremendously successful. I think if we go back to some of the statements you made in the past, Matt, um, that that maybe you'd get to like 10 or 12 stores or so. So is, is the second quarter going to kind of round out your – your store opening plan for that, or do you um, do you see with the success you've been enjoying that maybe you could increase the number of, of stores um, ultimately? And then I think you had also said in the past these would be primarily drop-off points and not not points of where there'd be a lot of retail activity. Just curious if um, you're what you're seeing is, is maybe making you rethink that. And then just. One last question on, on international, something we really haven't talked about um, a lot because of COVID and, and which you've had to do strategically to um, stabilize the business. Just curious if um, you think uh, international is something that you can make some progress in um, in FY21. Thanks. Okay, Matt. Okay. Three-parters. Four-parters. So I think, uh, I think uh, see how I do. Um, so it's a neighborhood I think that the question around, you know, t- uh, roughly 10 stores, I hope that's not where we stop, right? So if if, thing, if the stores that we open look like the ones that we've opened recently in Palo Alto and Brooklyn and Newport Beach, and those three continue to perform like they have or better, frankly, as capacity restrictions get loosened, we're going to probably want to open a, f- a fair number more of them because they, they look like they can be substantially more efficient and acquiring and unlocking supply than our marketing investments alone. Far more targeted, far more personalized, local. It's what consigners want to do. Um, so it, I would not be shocked. I would actually be quite pleased if two quarters from now we're here talking about a more aggressive rollout of these stores. That would be a fundamentally healthy thing for our business. Um, in terms of our view on how the, the mix of supply versus demand, still I think we, we look at them as 
from an incrementality perspective, they're more they're most powerful on the supply side. They acquire new consigners very efficiently and bring a lot of incremental supply to us. On the demand side, you, you can argue like they're helpful. Yes, they make us it makes it easier to sell high value products. The return rates are exceptionally low. Buyers love it. I mean, it, the, our NPS in the stores quite high. Um, people who interact with our stores are far more active on both supply and demand than people who only do interact with us online. So very healthy. I think it's a good question because I think we're finding um, that there is a lot of interest in people shopping in the stores and there's like across the board see very good sales, not just supply. Well, wait, but they are smaller footprint. So if you just look at the sheer number of SKUs we have in the store and they're smaller footprint by design, which means they get their, you know, lighter, they're just the cost efficiency supports smaller footprint versus flagship. But they have about a third of the SKUs or less of what a flagship store would have. So by its nature, it's up to the merchandising team. They've done a really good job of fine-tuning that mix to maximize the dollars even in sales per square foot based on the local neighborhood. So that's, uh, which means they are, we've never said you can't buy anything. It's just the, the size alone dictates a certain level of success because they will just by their size restraints have less SKUs. You want to international? Oh, international. We have international in our crosshairs. I do not expect to see any impact uh, from it this year, but I would assume that um, planning will begin for a launch next year, sometime this year. Planning this year for a launch next right. year. Right. So said another way, do not expect to see incremental expenses or incremental GMV associated with international this year. Great. Thank you so much. Um. Okay. So back to me. I want to thank you for uh, your attention. I want to encourage you all to get vaccinations when you uh, when your time comes up. And uh, just leave you on the note, we're excited to be back to growth, and we're looking forward to our next call uh, for our Q1 results. Thank you very much. Everyone else has left the call. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference. Thank you for your participation and have a wonderful day. You may all disconnect.